Good morning, Christ Bible Church. We will praise Him anywhere. It's why we gather uh, to give glory to God, to hear His Word. Uh, if you will join me and begin to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Kings chapter 14, we're going to read verses 1 through 20 together this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have uh, copies of the book of Kings out in the lobby on the bench. You can have it. It's a journaling Bible, which means it's text of Scripture on one side, and it's a blank page on the other so that you can take notes as we go through uh, books of the Bibles uh, here at CBC. It's our gift to you, so please take one. Even if you're not sure you'll ever come back because of this weird guy preaching, uh, we'd be glad if you took one. You'll notice as you turn to chapter 14, the first three words at that time. And before we jump into the text and we read these 20 verses, what is this time? As we zoom out, as we're looking at the end of Jeroboam's time here, what is actually happening so that we have this all in context? This section in chapter 14 appears to follow pretty quickly after the events of chapter 13, where a prophet came and spoke against the altars that Jeroboam had set up. If you zoom out even farther, we begin to see the big picture of Jeroboam's reign. Uh, What had happened with Jeroboam was in chapter 11, God had raised up adversaries because of Solomon's own uh, wickedness. He had set up altars and began to worship false gods and led the people in the worship of Asherah, Chamash, Milcom, other gods as well. Uh, And because of that, he sends his prophet to Jeroboam and he says, you are getting 10 tribes because Solomon has led the people in apostasy, in false worship. I am installing you as king. It was because of this false worship, the sin of of Solomon, that Jeroboam was installed as king. And yet, even though he was told this is the reason that you are receiving the kingdom, what was the very first thing he did if we go back to chapter 12? He installed golden cows. I don't know what it is about the Israelites and golden cows. They love cows. Uh... I always think of the Israelites every time. I went to Culver's this week, and it always kind of weirds me out when you go to Culver's, and there's a golden cow when you walk through the door. Uh, But anyway, that's what Jeroboam does. And if you go back and listen to the sermon, uh, when Paul was helping us work through this, we realized that one of the reasons that Jeroboam did this is it's a political decision. He is trying to protect himself as the primary king. And he's worried that if these 10 tribes go down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, then their hearts might be drawn back to Rehoboam, that they might want to reunify with their brothers in the south, and that his kingdom will come to a quick end. Uh, He sets up these cows, and he starts to lead the people from day one into apostasy. This led to chapter 13 that we talked about last week, the prophecy against these altars, against this false worship. What should have happened is the king should have heard this and repented, but that's not what happens. He doesn't stop the false worship, but we now get to chapter 14 and we see that although he received the word of the prophet, he even tries to somewhat bless and receive this prophet favorably as we saw in 13.7, Jeroboam has not turned from his plan. He will keep this false worship. He will keep leading the people in this way. He will not repent. He will not turn away. And the kingdom he has led will also follow him in rebellion. Despite the warning, Jeroboam will persist on the plan that he thinks is most prudent for his own well-being. With that, let's read the word of God this morning. 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. At that time, Abijah 
the son of Jeroboam fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as he came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing all only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a, as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the, sh in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers, and scatter them beyond the Euphrates." because they have made their ashram, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terzah. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all of Israel buried him and mourned him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam how he warred and how he reigned. Behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Israel. And, and the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years. And he slept with his fathers, and Nadab his son reigned in his place. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word even when we read your judgment pronounced on the evil and the wicked. For we know that there is nothing that goes unpunished. Father, that there is nothing that escapes you, that there, there is no bribing with you, no deceiving you, 
but you are the God that nothing escapes. And so we come before you this morning and we rejoice that you are our God, that you protect us, that you provide for us. Lord, that you made a way out of the sure judgment that we faced. And so we pray that even as we ponder on these words of judgment against the King Jeroboam, that our eyes would be lifted, that we would see Christ, Lord, the judgment that fell on him because of us, Lord, and the righteousness and the freedom that you have given us because of his sacrifice and payment. And so, Lord, we thank you that we have freedom in Christ, that we can rejoice that the judgment didn't fall to us, but that you made a way out through him. We ask that you would lift our eyes, our spirits, and our hearts to see you and understand you this morning. Amen. Even though Jeroboam has been unfaithful, what do we see as this chapter opens up? Jeroboam still sees value in the prophet of God, and he seeks God when it's favorable for him to do so. In this text, we see that despite his worship of all the other gods, the gods that he made, the gods of foreign lands, it is to the true God that he turns in his time of great need. So we are presented with this picture of a king whose son falls gravely ill, and in his desperation, he is going to send a message to the only man he knows that talks to the Lord. Knowing that God is a God who can heal, as he noticed when the other prophet came to him in chapter 13 and his hand was um, made sick and then made well, all in a moment, he sends his wife to the prophet of God in search for hope for his son. But what will we see as the story opens up? The first thing we see in these first six verses, we can summarize this way. God cannot be bargained with. Jeroboam thinks that he can cut a deal with God. Worse, he's not even man enough to do it himself. He's going to send his wife to talk to the prophet, and he's going to disguise her so that the prophet doesn't even know that it is his wife. Look at the story as it's unfolding. The king is sitting there with his wife and their sick child. He's looking at himself, saying, you know, me and God and the prophet, we're not really in great relationship right now. I've set up these cows. I've done all these things. Probably wouldn't be a good idea for me to go to this prophet. Hey, honey, how about you go? How about you go and talk to the prophet and see if maybe he will heal our child? Knowing that he's not going to be received well, he creates this wonderful plan. Honey, he might know that you're my, my wife, that you're the queen, so let's put a costume on you. Let's make it so he can't see who you are. That when you show up, Ahijah doesn't know that you are actually uh, the queen. He doesn't once say, God, I'm sorry for my wickedness. I repent of my idolatry. Help me in my time of need. He says, no, I'm going to keep all this stuff and I'm going to trick God into doing what I need him to do. But there's great irony as the story unfolds. Why? Because we have this king who thinks he is in charge, who is trying to negotiate with God to buy a favor. I'll send some cake and some honey. It will be all good. The prophet will be so excited to have these wonderful things. He will give me a blessing. But he doesn't know that the prophet is blind. This whole plan is including his wife being disguised but what the king doesn't know, who he thinks he knows everything, he thinks he has better judgment than God, is that the prophet of God is actually blind. He can't see. 
There is no need for his wife to wear a disguise. She could walk right in and he wouldn't know. He can't see at all. The king who sees perfectly, though, does not see himself at all. But the prophet, as the text unfolds, who can see very little because of God, sees perfectly clear. The opportunity for deception is over before it even begins. We're told in verse 6, When Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Could you imagine her face at this moment in time? Right, she's got this, I'm going to come in. She's probably a little nervous because she knows her husband's not the greatest guy, that he's set up these cows and this false worship. She walks in with this present and with this disguise, hoping to get a blessing from the prophet. And before she can give the gifts, before she can say one word, the prophet says, come in, wife of Jeroboam. I'm sure that she had the biggest, longest look in her face, like, oh no. This isn't going to go like me and Jeroboam planned. The poor lady doesn't even get a chance to sit down. Why? Because God is the all-knowing, all-seeing one. His prophet is prepared, and the queen is exposed as the fraud that she is. She doesn't get to present the gift or even make her plea. She arrives to news she does not want to hear. The Lord knows who she is, whether she is disguised or not. She cannot hide from God nor deceive his prophet. In seeing but not seeing by the king, and in the converse, the not seeing by the prophet, but the seeing that he actually is able to do, the text asks us something very clearly. We are meant to ask in these opening verses, who is the one who is truly blind? Who is the one who's really blind? Is it the prophet whose old age has messed up his eyes, he can no longer see? Or is it the king who appears to be strong and have perfect vision? We know the answer. The one who cannot see is the king Jeroboam. And in this opening section, we are reminded of something that we should take to heart. Sin distorts our ability to see and our ability to think and our ability to even know. But God's word brings clarity and should always be the way that we determine what is right and what will ultimately be for our good. And as God's people, as we encounter God through his word, when we see his commands and if we don't live up to them, we don't ask ourselves who's right, who needs to change. Does God's word need to change or do I need to change? The answer is always me. Jeroboam should have heard the words of the prophet and changed the path that he was on, and yet he doesn't. He's going to try to change God. He's going to bargain with God. It's like he's at a garage sale. He said, God, I know in chapter 11, when you first came to me, you said, obey all that I have commanded, walk in all of my ways, do what is right in your eyes. How about I do none of that, but I give you a little bit of cake? Then could I have what I need? And God says, no. It's not only that the prophet sees, though, while the king doesn't, we are also reminded as this is unfolding that God can't be tricked, that he can't be bargained with. The queen was not only hiding her identity, she was also to bring an offering to this prophet in hopes of securing a positive message about the future of her son. The king's plan was not to turn from sin, to repent, to come before the Lord and lay himself at the feet like David does when he's confronted with his sin and say, against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. No, the king says, I'm going to get my wife in a costume and I'm going to make a little cake and give a little bit of honey. It'll be good, trust me. 
It doesn't work like that. The king's plan is only to go and bargain with God under the cover of deception. It's to compound sin with more sin. He says, if the prophet doesn't know who we are and I give something good, maybe, just maybe, our son will get some good news. He should have repented. He should have turned from his sin. But the king continues to sin and lead others into sin, even forcing his wife to go and try to lie to this prophet about who she is. And as he attempts to deceive God and deceive God's prophet, everything begins to crumble down. Seeing he does not see. Sin has closed the eyes of the king. He will not turn from his rebellion. To Jeroboam, God is somebody who can be manipulated. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise to us because the foreign nations in the ancient Near East, their gods were gods who could be manipulated. This is what we should expect from somebody who doesn't actually worship God, who doesn't actually know who he is, because the gods always had to be pleased. If something's not going right, it's because we've angered the gods and we need to do something different. We need to bribe the god with this kind of new worship or this other thing. One of my favorite stories in all of Kings is going to come up in four or five chapters when Elijah is on Mount Carmel and they have two competing sacrifices and we have all the prophets of Baal, the foreign god, and they have put all these things on there and they're chanting and Elijah, the only prophet that's standing up there is mocking the the prophets of Baal, saying, maybe you should just be a little bit louder. Maybe he's asleep. You should wake him up. And they start banging. They start cutting themselves. They start doing all of these crazy things because they're trying to manipulate their God into acting on their behalf. To Jeroboam, this is how you get what you want from God. You manipulate him. If I do the right things in the right ways at the right time, then the gods will be happy and they will give me what I want. These four nations had to please their gods, and thus the people were in a habit of continually trying to manipulate the gods in order to get blessings. But what do we see? God cannot be frustrated by human schemes. No amount of cake and honey can divert God's plan. Jeroboam, blind, unrepentant, will treat the God of Israel just like he does every other foreign god as somebody to manipulate and use, not somebody to worship and to follow. And as a result, disaster is right around the corner for him, for his family, and for his nation. God's blessing does not go to the highest bidder. God cannot be bought. He is all-knowing, all-seeing, and unchanging. There is no manipulating God and using him like some magic genie to get what we want. The king should know this. And indeed, it does appear that at some point in time, he had some knowledge of this. His son, which we're told his name here, uh, his, his name is Abijah, which means, literally, my father is Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of the God of Israel. This son that is sick holds the name, my father is Yahweh. Jeroboam knew at one point in time that the one that he should follow, the one who had true power, the one who could actually take care of these things for him, the one who commanded him, follow me in all of my ways, do everything that is right in my eyes, and I will establish in you a kingdom. But sin has taken root in the life of Jeroboam, and what he once knew and proclaimed through the naming of his son is no longer clear to him. Even in his apostasy, though, 
He knows that there is only one God who holds the answer to the future. Only Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so this desperate king has sent his wife to receive a message from the prophet of God. He's not desperate enough to turn from his sin, but he will try to earn God's favor through deception and bribery. But you can't earn his favor. There's no bargaining with him. Like Jeroboam, I suspect many of us in this room intellectually know this to be true, that we can't make deals with God, that we can't bribe God, but functionally, many of us live our lives like this king from time to time, trying to cut deals with God, expecting that because we do something good for God, he will then in return do what we want. Just this last week, I was talking to a friend who told me that his uh, young toddler has recently begun trying to bargain with him. And she comes to him and says, Daddy, I will obey you if you give me a snack. Right? And and this is her reasoning. Right? Like, I'll do what you want if you give me what I want. I will obey you. And of course, as a good parent, he says, no, you will obey me whether you get a snack or not. That's how this goes. But so often, we are like this child with God. We know what God has asked us to do, and we say, okay, God, I will do that if you just give me this thing that I want. Take generosity, for example. As believers, as Christians, as people who belong to God, we are commanded to be generous people. But how many of us in here have thought in our lives, if we're being honest, I would be generous if I just made a little bit more money, if I got that raise that I wanted, that promotion, maybe I would even win the billion dollar Powerball, then I could be as generous as you want me to be, God. We have had these prayers in our life, if we're being honest, these moments where we are like that kid, where we know the clear command of God, and yet we say to God, okay, I will do that, but only if X, Y, Z. But we should first see the commands of God Be generous, for example, and seek to follow that regardless of the circumstances of life. Simply, we are called to worship God, to pursue him and to follow him, regardless if he provides the healing, the finances, the relationship, or whatever else we're going to God for. Jeroboam was not wrong to go to God in search of healing for his son. Right? This is a good thing that he does. But he was wrong to assume that he could deceive and manipulate God into doing what he wanted. He was wrong to refuse to repent and to turn from his sin and follow the clear commands that God has given him. He doesn't understand that there's not a magic formula, no ritual that he can do to cause God to respond in the way that he desires. And we need to understand that too. We cannot control or command God. Jeroboam should have simply repented of his sin, turned his heart to God in devotion, and submitted himself to him. To fall at the feet of God and say, I have sinned, I have messed up, I have not followed in your commands. Help me in this time of need. I am yours. But instead, he refuses to turn from sin, and he sees God as not somebody to follow, but somebody to control. And as a result, those fateful words arrive to his wife, come in, I am charged with unbearable news for you. What is this move, this news? It's the news of God's judgment coming for the sin of Jeroboam. His family will be cut off. There will be no continuation of his kingly line. 
Worse, there will be no honor for him or for his family. Even worse, the entire nation is going to suffer because of Jeroboam. Jeroboam's disobedience, we began to see, affects not just his destiny, nor the destiny of his house, it affects the destiny of his entire kingdom. Jeroboam has acted like he is in charge, refusing to submit to God, refusing to follow the commands of the Lord, and it is now revealed to him how little power he actually has and the consequence of his rebellion. And before we start to say that's not fair, we should say something very clearly. When we rebel against God, it never affects just us. Jeroboam's sin is not just Jeroboam's sin. It has become a plague that's destroyed his family and indeed his entire nation. And it's revealed that because of Jeroboam, the whole nation has been infected. They have all turned their back on the Lord. They have all worshipped these foreign gods. Sin never affects only the person sinning. When we refuse to repent, we are endangering not just ourselves, but if we have a family, we endanger our family. If we're part of a church, we endanger our church. We are putting those that are around us at risk. And the call is to repent, to turn back to God, to find healing and restoration. We might convince ourselves in our sin that it's okay because the only person it's affecting is ourselves, but we see this time and time in Scripture. That's just simply not true. Sin doesn't affect only the sinner. As King Jeroboam was to lead the people, most fundamentally in a love for God and a trust in God, and he has utterly failed. The royal household and indeed the entire nation were to be a light among the nations, to, re- to represent God, to be a people set apart, or as Deuteronomy 7.6, a nation holy to the Lord. But the description of what these people are like here is anything but a nation that is holy to the Lord. In verse 10, when it says all of the males are cut off, we might miss the significance of this statement unless you have a KJV. For some reason, the ESV just likes to translate this male, and I'll tell you why. The word male here in verse 10 comes from a rare word that's a derogatory word only used six other times in the Old Testament. And it literally means not male, but one who pees on walls. This is the house of Jeroboam. They are barbarians, crude masculinity. This is not the males, the heirs to the kingdom, the royal line that should represent God. They are literally the men who are drunk in the streets doing whatever that they want. God's people were to be a light among the nations, but they are instead presented in this derogatory nature, not only worshiping other gods, but having this crude barbarian-like mentality. So the line of Jeroboam will fall. These crude men will not be buried, but will be burned, will be eaten by dogs and birds, the same as one who uh, burns up animal poop. That's That's the type of honor that Jeroboam is going to receive. The same way the stench that happens with that is the stench that your family will be Jeroboam. Your family will receive no honor, they will literally be viewed as worthless and as something that stinks. They're a stench upon the kingdom. The only one who will escape this is the son, ironically, that Jeroboam has sent to inquire about. He alone shall die and receive honor in burial. Which we might say, how is it fair that he dies? But we should see this, even his death 
even the judgment that he should die, is actually a great mercy meant to spare him from the suffering that's going to come on his family. And so we read this story and say, how is this fair? How is this fair that all of this destruction comes on this man's family, upon this nation, because of Jeroboam? Well, the unfortunate truth when we talk about fairness is the only fair thing is for judgment to come to all of us. God's judgment comes for all who rebel against him. And as scripture tells us and personal experience tells us, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it is clear from the description given to these men that follow in Jeroboam's family and also the nation that they have followed in Jeroboam's footsteps. They have sinned. They are not the light on the hill. They are not the holy people set apart to worship their God. No judgment is coming because they have committed great sin against God. 22 years Jeroboam has served as king, it tells us at the end. All of them in rebellion against God. It may have seemed to Jeroboam that he was above punishment. I like to think maybe as he's setting up the first altar, he's looking over his shoulder, nothing happens. Second altar, still nothing happens. All right, let's get these foreign gods, nothing's happening. Jeroboam appears to think, at least in my opinion, that he's above punishment or perhaps even somehow equal to God. He's going to escape judgment. He doesn't have to follow the same rules as everybody else. But that is not the case. The text reminds us judgment is coming and it is coming for his whole house that has participated in his sin, in his rebellion against God. It was the word of the Lord. And in verse 18, it tells us it comes to pass because God's word is sure. The story indeed of Jeroboam is tragic. But the good news of the gospel is that God is merciful to sinners. He forgives idolaters and he forgives liars. He offers everlasting life to dying people. This salvation offered by God is made possible through the work of the king who took our judgment at the cross, rose from the dead, and opened the way of salvation for all who would heed God's call to repent and to believe in Jesus. Hear the word of God this morning if you have not been found in him. Don't persist in sin and rebellion like Jeroboam. Repent, believe in Jesus, turn to the, wor- turn to the Lord, hear his word. Look to Jesus as that sin-bearing sacrifice that alleviates your greatest burden in life and embrace the fullness of salvation that Christ offers us. Then you can be assured of a place in his coming kingdom. But if you have this morning, you're sitting here, you have embraced Jesus as your savior and your king. This text reminds us then to rejoice in him now. Realize that your king has come and your king will return. Peace and righteousness will dwell forever. The kingdom as we see in Jeroboam and all of its dysfunction, the constant warring, the the false worship, sin, plague, disaster, that will not be our kingdom if we are found in Jesus. We get to live in peace and righteousness forever. Live in light of that reality as his people, as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. And as we wrap up this morning, I want to leave you with just a few Quick questions. One, as you leave today, are there areas in your life that you are negotiating with God rather than simply following his commands as Lord? 
Are there areas in your life that you know he has asked you to do this? And you say, God, I will do that if X, Y, Z. Let this text remind you, don't negotiate with God. Follow his commands. Number two, we talked about this last week too, but do you trust in the word of God as reliable? What God has said, we can be sure that he will do. We see that throughout the pages of Scripture. We see that here in chapter 14. And as God's people today, we should rely on the Word of God. We should rely on God to act according to His Word as He has spoken, as Hebrews tells us, through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days by His Son. Do you trust in the Word of God? Jeroboam trusted in himself and his own political maneuvering rather than in the Word of God. So what does your life say? Do you trust in God's word revealed through the Son, or are you trusting in your own ability and maneuvering like Jeroboam? And finally, number three, how might you find encouragement thinking that our God is all-seeing and unchanging? And how might this help you to grow in your confidence in Jesus? The story of Jeroboam reminds us that we need a better king and, from chapter 13 even, a better prophet. We need one who can overcome our greatest problem, death. We need one who can bring about a united kingdom under a perfectly just and wise reign. We have all of it, indeed all of it, in Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So this morning, stop negotiating with God, submit to the King, and follow him, for his ways lead to life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the God of life. That you redeem your people. Lord, that even while we were still in sin, you sent a Savior for us. And Father, we know that we are just like Jeroboam. That we negotiate, that we manipulate, that we try to get our own way, and yet, Lord, we come to you and say, we are sorry. We want to be a people who follow you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength, to love you and your ways most fundamentally in our lives. And so we pray that you would do that for us, that you would be shaping our minds and correcting us, that you would bring rebuke when necessary, encouragement when needed, Lord, that we might be the people holy and set apart as you desired your people to be, that you might be making us pure, that you might be helping us to live in light of the righteousness that we have because of Christ and to exemplify you in the nations. Help us to be your people. Help us to follow in your ways. Help us to rejoice in our eternal security because of what you have done. Lord, we thank you for your work in your son. We thank you that you know the future, that there is nothing that can hide from your sight. And yet, even knowing the future and knowing all of our own wickedness, you still chose to send your son to save us. And so we rejoice in you and in your work this morning as your people. We say this in the name of Christ. Amen.